This is an ABC podcast. This is Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Bobby McCumber. Agnes Titus has always been a peacemaker. On Nissan Island in Bougainville, where she was born, fighting was considered shameful and something to be avoided. Agnes has carried this with her throughout her career as a staunch human rights defender, politician and women's advocate. At 68, she is helping displace victims of sorcery-related violence and working with men to champion women in and out of the home. Agnes, welcome. Thank you, Bobby. You were born on Nissan Island, a small coral atoll about 200 kilometres northwest of Bougainville. What does it mean to be a Nissan Islander? As I recall my childhood on growing up on Nissan Island, it was all very peaceful. Um, I couldn't ask for more. All I experienced was love and peace. Love in the sense that we were so kind to one another. There was no fighting. I had never seen um, domestic violence in my whole life as I was growing up on the island. All I saw was love between relatives, between everybody in the village, be, uh, between people from uh, other villages. And when we came together as a parish, uh, to celebrate on Sundays, we would be so happy to meet our distant relatives uh, at the parish area. And after service on Sundays, we would mingle, continue to mingle with uh, distant relatives, you know, who come from uh, faraway villages, but we just come and meet one another at the parish after service. Yes. Mm. Did you see that respect in your family between your mum and dad? In my own family growing up, I never saw any fighting, any uh, uh, big mouthing or, or bad words, nothing, nothing of that sort. And and so I, I grew up not knowing that uh, I would expect uh, domestic violence. Even when I went to to school, I, I, I did not hear about domestic violence in other parts of Bougainville as well. And so and so I, I thought that there was no such thing as uh, domestic violence or gender based violence at all mm. until later on in life. In high school, inequality between men and women became really clear to you. You turned the page of the Post-Courier newspaper one day and found a letter written by a man about women's fashion. What was he saying? Yeah. Yes, he was uh, complaining and, and not, not really complaining. He was sort of putting women on their, on their position, he was saying, women are not to wear long trousers. Women, you are not to wear sunglasses. Women, you are not to do your hair. Women, you are to wear skirts. Women, you are, this is your place in society. Women, you stay behind the, the kitchen. And I got very angry. I said, no. If I if I am to follow what this man is is saying, 
then it is no use me coming and getting an education. Because when I read that, uh, 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 what he said in the post-Korea, I was doing my grade 11 and grade 12 uh, over in East New Britain. And I got very angry as if he was really talking directly to me and that, that he was putting me in my position. And that I'm, I was saying, no, if I'm to follow what this man is saying, and there are many women, young girls in Papua New Guinea coming up, we, we cannot take this. This is not right. And so I, I, I did a reply. I said, I, I said, because he titled his, um, his, um, what he was saying, he said, Oh, Mary, one talk. And so I titled mine, which I put in the, in the school magazine. I said, Oh, man, one talk. <laughs> and I, I said something, something like, you know, you are not to tell me where to go. You are not to tell me what to wear. You are not to tell me what I must not do. That is not on. I know that I have equal rights just as you, men. <laughs> How was that received <laughs> by people who read your response? I, I, I guess, I guess I was speaking on behalf of the, the, the girl population at the school at Caravat National High School, where I was at that time. But I knew, I knew that when I was putting that reply in, I was actually speaking on behalf of all the young girls in, in Papua New Guinea, because at that time I was seeing, um, uh, young girls were wearing skirts we're wearing long trousers, we're wearing sunglasses to protect our eyes because we knew sunglasses were a means of protection for our eyes. And that's why we were wearing, you know, dark sunglasses as well, young girls, because of the hot sun in, in our country. And, 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 and I know that people must have understood what, where I was coming from and must, must have supported mm. Now, you met Michael in your 20s and married in 1974. Your marriage fulfilled a cultural obligation because Michael's sister Lucy had married your brother Henry. What was your life like with Michael? I, um, my domestic life with Michael and just our overall uh, relationship was a very, very, very good one. You see, I, there was seven years difference between Michael and I, but because we come from the same religious background, we come from the same cultural background, we were able to sort things out. Uh, I grew to like him and love him. See, those two are two different uh, aspects. I grew to like him, but I also grew to love him very much. Uh, I did not know him initially. Like I said, he was seven years difference between me and him. And so by the time I went to school, he had already left Nissan Island to go to school uh, here on the mainland. And then he went on to further his education in Australia uh, at uh, Marist Ashgrove. That's where he went to school. And um, so I did not, I did not know of him much. I, I saw him occasionally, but, you know, there was no inkling in me that later on he would become my husband. But like I said, um, 
uh, our marriage fulfilled uh, cultural obligations uh, when his sister married my brother Henry. And so it was, he knew that he had to to marry somebody who would fulfill that. We call it an exchange marriage. And by that, we mean that whatever our fathers, you know, Henry's father and his other brothers and my uncles and all that, how, however much they collected as um, as a bright price for Lucy, and then when Michael married me, he was him and his uh, father and uncles were just supposed to to repay that that amount of money that um, Henry paid for Lucy's bright price. Michael's father was a man you grew to love throughout your marriage, but the community viewed him differently. Why was that? Michael's father was being accused by people in the community as uh, uh, they accused him of being a sorcerer. And later on, when I married Michael and became a, a really uh, full-fledged adult, I got to understand. I got to understand why he was being accused. Firstly, uh, Michael's mother died in childbirth. She was uh, suffering from TB, very bad TB. Although she had been back and forth to the hospital in Sohano, when she went back, she she had she was expecting a baby, and she died. Also, the baby died, and uh, Michael's father was accused. They said, "Oh, he did uh, so sorry to her, and she died." You know, people at that time were very uneducated. They didn't understand, uh, you know, the different types of sicknesses that we can have. Uh, They didn't understand about TB. Um, They they didn't understand all these things at all. And so the the first thing that they did was accuse him and said said that he he did sorcery spell on her and she died. Uh, also, I know that um, I know that he he was uh, seeing uh, a young woman from another village, and so and so a fight broke out. I just heard about this later from Michael that the men from the girl's village came and uh, had a fight with his father, and uh, you know all that all 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 that all that conflict sort of fueled the accusations which i can tell which i can tell you that by that time i when michael was wanting to marry me and i i actually felt frightened i was oh, scared really? i was I, I was scared because of of the accusations and so yeah that the accusations had an impact on me i was a bit scared and i was really thinking hard whether to to follow Michael's um, wish to that he was wanting to to see me as his partner mm. and and because you know I was very young too I, I I was I was 18 when Michael wanted was making his uh you know his his feelings towards me clear and then by 19 I was married to him as soon as I left school, 
Uh, and then, yes, I got married to him. Because if you can understand me, in those days, it was very shameful, you know, to have, uh, to be pregnant and, and unmarried. And so um, as soon as I found out that I was pregnant, uh, I I just told Michael, let us go back quickly to Nissan and get married there. You know, have have our marriage blessed by a priest, and <laughs> because I was not showing, <laughs> I was I was really small, and uh, and and um, my stomach wasn't showing. So you gave birth to your daughter Loretta in in November of that same year when you got yes. married. How prepared were you for motherhood? Yes, I was not. I was not prepared at all. I was not prepared at all. I did not know. I was just banking on bits and pieces, um, which I gathered from some some information I gathered from uh, the program when I was working, when I started to work up in BCL. And, and one of the community development programs I was in charge of was to organize you know, trainings or information sharing or, you know, how to, you know, just how to build up my life and other women's lives. Because I was in charge of working with um, the wives of BCL employees. And so I would organize programs where a nurse or a doctor or different types of people would come and talk to us to give us information. And so that information I was gathering was really good for my own personal life as well as for the other women also. But then I came across a book. The book was on motherhood. And I read the book from front to back, backwards and forwards for several times until I really understood it. So that I understood um, how I can regulate my my monthlies and so that I can I can have a child when I wanted to have a child. Yes. And and that I was not just, you know, having children because I I know that I I I was pregnant with Loretta due to my ignorance. I did not know how I did not know all these facts of life. I did not know anything how children were came to be, what life was like between men and women and the result would be a child. I did not know, know all that until I read that book and it really helped me in my whole life after that. It just ruled my life. I, my life was centered around that kind of uh, information. Mm. It sounds very empowering, Agnes. What did you do with that information? Well, with that information, I share it a lot with other women or with couples or even even here when I uh, women who were having too many children or couples together, I would talk to them about this that it's very simple to regulate your your periods and to to want to have a child when you want to have a child and not not having unplanned children uh, even now when I came to work here uh, uh, in Nazareth Center for Rehabilitation. Uh, the last group of 10 men, they were from a district in uh, South Bougainville, from Bana District. They came up here to to attend some peace-building courses, and I was asked by Sister Lorraine to talk to them. And I, I talked to them about this. I told them that sex 
is one thing I have found to be one of the causes of domestic violence. And men will always uh, violate their wife's rights by wanting to have sex when the woman is not ready or when the woman is ovulating and therefore unplanned children will be the result. It's very simple to just demonstrate and tell them that you start counting on the day of your monthly your wife and you men you can you can do that with your wife together so that you two walk along together experiencing the safe days and abstaining the uh during the unsafe days and then having sex again during the safe days until you find the next period and so they they it was really empowering for those 10 men uh they were young men nine of them were young men they had some of them had one one child. Some of them had two children only. Some of them did not have any children yet. And and one man was an old man, and he had ten children. You know, I established good rapport with with that group of men, and so I kept referring to the old man as an example to saying that had he known, I don't think he would have this many children. But and he, but it was very empowering for him also. As male advocates, it was a, they were a group of male advocates. So I said, as male advocates, you are supposed to support women, and therefore this information you can also support other couples who are go, who are having uh, going through domestic violence because of this kind of issues in their lives. You're listening to Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Bobby McCumber and I'm speaking with Agnes Titus, a leading human rights advocate in Bougainville. Agnes, throughout your career, you've spoken out about sorcery-related violence. The murder of primary school teacher Helen Rambali in 2013 sent shockwaves across the region. What was she like? Helen was someone who contributed so much to the development of Bougainville. As a school teacher, she taught hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students from all over Bougainville. And then when she retired from her teaching career, she became a woman leader. In the Catholic Church, she was the president of the uh, Catholic Women's Association in her parish. And in the overall uh, women's organization here in Bougainville, she was the president of the Bana District Women's Federation. And so, even that alone, I found it so difficult to fathom as to why her people accused her of sorcery when I know that there is no proof. We do not have any proof for that sorcery actually happens or that that there is proof that sorcery actually kills people. But I know that it is a belief. People just believe it. And they believe in all these things without proof. The accusations are really just an excuse or a cover-up. What the other people, the accusers, are really after 
is the land of these people who are being accused or the leadership titles. At this day and age here in Bougainville, and I know it's in Papua New Guinea also, this is the worst thing that is happening in communities now because the belief system has spread. They just spread and believe anything and everything. And so they believe that sorcery is uh, is something that happens and that people use it to kill others and all that. But I know that they are, you know, we've got so many families here now and uh, they, they have come to the Nazareth Center for Rehabilitation with the clothes on their back because they have been tortured in their villages. Their property has been burnt. Their houses have been burnt and they ran away and they, they came here. And so when we are working with these people, we have come to find out all the excuses that the accusers use <clears throat> just to create havoc and to, to, to try and uh, destabilize the, the place, things like that. Agnes, as you've mentioned, many victims of sorcery have fled to the Nazareth Centre of Rehabilitation, which is where you work now. How big of a problem is this today? It is a very, very big problem. Everywhere in Bougainville, everywhere in Bougainville, uh, this is happening. I will tell you how the accusers come by. Some accusers come in the form of uh, uh, having gifts, uh, maybe a spiritual gift. I don't believe these people. For example, they may come and pray over a sick person, and in the process of praying, they say that their gift, uh, whoever is talking to them, is telling them the sorcerer. So they will say, oh, I prayed over you, your sickness, your sickness has been created by so-and-so, so-and-so. So they named the person. And you know, it's, it's, it's by in legal terms, it is terrible. And it's happening right throughout uh, Bougainville. Some people, they will see, they, they just accuse. They watch, they watch the actions of somebody and then they start to, uh, they just start from gossip. They talk about, you know, how how they saw the person acting and they start to, you know, just accuse now. They accuse this person and they just continue to watch and they pile accusations on top of one another until it comes to a breaking point. Then they torture. You know, when the rule, when the mob rules, they, you know, they they get they get strength in numbers. And so they just move and torture. They torture this accused and the people run away with the clothes on their back. The Nissan culture is really quite, uh, it, it's formed under legal, like it's really legal. Like when the when the person heard that, that he was named by this young girl who was supposedly praying and healing, he stood up on his rights also and said, using the culture, now you've got to compensate me because you call my name in vain. I'm not that. So you are defaming me. You have to compensate me. So when other people, I think there were other people who were named also in, in different instances, and they were all standing up, you know, asking for compensation. And that alone 
has uh, made the young girl to drop what she was doing. Agnes, you pivoted into politics and local government and put women's experiences in the spotlight. But now your work is focused also on men and their role in championing women. What does that look like? See, all my life I have worked with women. From when I left school, I went straight to work in Panguna, BCL. And and it was work that was involving women. So all aspects of women's life I was involved in. Gender-based violence occurs mainly 99% because it is the man who is uh, causing all that, all that uh, in the woman's life. Uh, she's battered, she's emotionally uh, impacted, and because of that, we felt that we had to work with men also. The men, because they are oftentimes the abusers, they have to understand this issue. And so that is why our work here in Nasarat Center for Rehabilitation, we are working with men. They are male advocates. They, 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 they come in this component in our program to be male advocates. And they are explained thoroughly. A male advocate is really a woman human rights defender. We just call you male advocate to conform with the kind of verbatim that happens all over the world, that they, w- they would call you a male advocate. Really, you are supposed to support women and defend women's human rights. That's really what the role of a male advocate is. And so that is why we are working th- with these people so that they can help to talk to other men also. Uh, in regards to gender-based violence, and so we do we do a lot of advocacy in that area also, um, and so we do a lot of advocacy through these men, uh, the the men that we have trained to become male advocates, and so that is that is quite a, a component in a, in in the program that we are doing here. Um, yes. And and that's the main reason why we have to work with men, because men are oftentimes the perpetrators of gender-based violence. You've done so much, and yet you were also navigating health issues at the same time, Agnes. Uh, in 2021, your diabetes claimed your left leg. I can't imagine how difficult that must have been for you. How did you make peace with this? I reflected and I thought about all the work that I did. I traveled places. I traveled uh, inside and outside of Papua New Guinea and inside and outside of Bougainville. I had to come to terms with myself. I saw the infection. Uh, The infection was um, eating up my toes. And so I, I wanted to have my leg cut. I said thank you to my leg. I reflected and I prayed and I said, God, I thank you for my leg. And then I thank my leg. I I said thank you to my own leg too. I said, thank you, leg. You brought me this far. You You made me do what I think God had planned for me as my mission in life. You brought me places. You brought me to different peoples. And I thank you for that. So. I can part with you now. 
That's incredible. Agnes, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your stories. I thank you very much also. I am happy that my story can be, you will amplify my voice and that other women can hear and, and may get some inspiration probably or encouragement or just the courage, yeah, uh, if whoever is facing uh, a hard life at this time of their life. Mm, such important stories to share. Thank you. That was Bougainville human rights advocate Agnes Titus. You've been listening to Stories from the Pacific. I'm Bobby McCumber. To catch more great stories about incredible people from the Pacific, just search for ABC Pacific. This story was produced on the lands of the Yagara and Turrbal people.